It shouldn't be, you know, five stars from a Empire magazine, a thrilling action writer. It should just be us two saying Koreans know their shit. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine which quenches your burning thirst for nerdy film content. We're back to help you through 2021 to get you through the lack of open cinemas, long wait for a vaccine, political unrest and Zoom fatigue. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, thanks for the introduction. It's nice to be here. It's been a mental week. Um, it looks like six days into 2021. Uh, it's already more mental than 2020 ever could be, but let's let's get into this. Uh, each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world split into two reels for those of you who like to take an intermission between installments of film content. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode nine. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds looking at our film experiences over the holiday season and our New Year's resolutions for the movie world. Then we have our classic feature from our list of great films we've been meaning to watch instead of Bond repeats on ITV4. This month, my dad finally got around to watching the fantastic Korean zombie film Train to Busan. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Sam Peckinpah's hard-hitting World War II film, Cross of Iron. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the screen. This month we're looking at the efforts by the Wachowskis, John Milius and others to reboot Conan the Barbarian. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the 2010 remake of The Karate Kid starring Jackie Chan and Jaden Smith. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. For this episode, we'll be looking at the stories emerging about Don- Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and their significance in the Me Too era. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. NY Mackham is back again, saying, I'm going to have to disagree with you on Lethal Weapon. It is a Christmas film. The opening theme is Jingle Bell Rock. It takes place entirely over the Christmas period. It has a happy ending where the suicidal lunatic Vietnam veteran protagonist goes to his new surrogate family's house for Christmas dinner, and Myrtle's wife is played by Darlene Love, singer of the greatest Christmas song ever. Compelling argument, I did not know that. <laughs> the socials have been uh, lighting up a little bit when we trailed our features for this month. Uh, Donnell says, uh, I love Train to Busan. That was pretty unanimous. Um, there's a few people out there responding to Cross of Iron, our hidden gem this month. Quite a cast, says Lauren. James Coburn, Maximilian Shell, James Mason, David Warner. Yeah. Kevin says, great movie, which deserves more recognition. Chris says, it's a classic. Thanks, Chris. Although we're calling out a hidden gem and Train to Busan is our classic, which is all very confusing. I do apologize. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> People are also responding to our upcoming Conan feature. Jonathan says, if they reboot Conan now, Jason Momoa would probably do better in the role than in 2011, honestly. He's no longer trying so hard to be an 80s action hero. JB agrees, saying they don't need to reboot it, just have Conan continuing his many adventures. With the, excess, with the success of The Witcher on Netflix, the time couldn't be better. And somewhat to my surprise, the busiest topic on the socials from our trailed features is for the remake Hate Watch of Karate Kid. Only a few outright condemning the film. Rory can't stand Jaden Smith. John S. I wasn't comfortable with the romance between what was basically two little kids. 
Josh said, I'd be straight out the door if the first thing my Kung Fu instructor said was to take my clothes off. But quite a few positive comments, actually. Yeah, I like, I like that one too. But quite a few positive comments, actually. Chris, Darren, Justin, Domingo, Phil, Tory, Mark, all like the film. Probably a majority of comments, actually. We'll have to dig into that later. Thanks, as always, for your comments. They're much appreciated. Now it's time to get on with the show. Now for our monthly roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. There's a little bit of film news for us to discuss and a look at what we've been watching. Um, There's a slightly different approach to roundup this month. We're not just going to talk about every film we watched for about three seconds, so we're going to try and make it a bit tighter. But firstly, uh, James, did you see any uh, film news over the past couple of weeks that caught your eye? Um, Not really, no. There was the big one last month with... um Warner Brothers just streaming everything, but other than that, no. Yeah, there's. No, I haven't seen anything as. Yeah, I haven't seen anything as big as that either. I noticed they published the UK box office figures for 2020. Oh, um, predictably, nine out of the top ten were films that were released before the lockdown. Yeah. Um, 1917 was the top film. I think the only film that crept into the top ten that came out after the um, the pandemic really hit was Tenet. Okay. Um, a couple of a couple of people from my youth uh, died uh, sadly in the past few days. Tanya Roberts, who was a Bond girl and due to a kill. And uh, Marion Ramsey, who played uh, Officer Hooks in Police Academy, also died, which was uh, which was sad news. Sorry, did you see the tiny? Yeah, the, the, pu- the publicist sort of made a terrible mess of it. Yeah, she, did she actually pass away? Yeah. Because they basically said, "No, oh, she's she's died. Oh no, she hasn't, but she's in a critical condition." And then I didn't see anything after that. Did she actually did she pass away in the end? Yeah, what I understand to be the case was that they, her publicist announced that she died, and then the next day came out and said, I'm really sorry, she she hasn't died, but she's in a hospital and it doesn't look good. And then the next day she came out and said, yeah, yeah now she's died. Um, so kind of, um, yeah, I mean, kind of a slightly, you know, sad event, but slightly farcically reported. 2021's off to yeah, a great start. Just, just odd, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Some some positive news. Um, there's a the headline that I've got here is that there was a record number of big Hollywood films had female directors in 2020. Um, it's still you know nowhere near equal, but out of the hundred highest grossing films uh, in in 2020, 16 percent of them were directed by women, which is up from 12 percent in 2019 and only four percent in 2018. So seems to be a step in the right direction. Anyway, yeah, no, it's good that they're getting the opportunities. That was always my argument when it came to yeah, I mean, you know, people saying let's have a female Bond or let's make this character female, and I was like, no, I want, I don't mind female directors and female stars, but let's let them create new things and be involved in their own projects, which has been good. You know, things like The Favorite and Little yeah, yeah. Women and things like that. So, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, good, it's good to see. Um, so apart from that, I was gonna. Uh, move on to the next thing which was rather than talk about every film we watched this month i thought we could talk about what films we got for christmas or bought with vouchers or gift cards we got for christmas uh, james did you want to weigh in i think you know my you know my one and why i'm so fucking annoyed at it so basically i got myself yes. the um the new xbox series x back in uh no the end of november um i'm a bit i'm a, I'm a big gamer and i thought you know what, I'll, I'll get the new one um while i can still get it so i got it and then my dad was doing. A, I told my dad that I was getting it, and he went, "Oh well, uh, you can get. It runs at 4K Ultra HD." You know, I didn't even know that, so he was like, "Right, just pick a film that you want to see in uh, 4K on your new Xbox and get it for your Christmas." I went, "Okay, cool." So I said, "Interstellar," because it's one of my favorite films, and it is a beautiful film to watch. So after work, I was like, "Oh fuck it, you know what? I'm not going to put on Netflix. I'm not going to put on a TV show. I'm going to try and watch an entire film." I put the film on, put the disc in, and it genuinely sounds like 
a Harrier jump jet trying to take off. For some reason, they've they they don't know how to run discs. They've tried they've tried to gear everything towards being more digital. So when I'm trying to mm-hmm. li- I'm trying to listen to the film, and it was like I I could probably listen to the volume and not hear the wording of it, but it was like half eleven at night, and everyone else was trying to sleep. Um. Mm-hmm. So I, I obviously can't put the volume up to the point where it's like bringing down the house. So I, I I can't listen to it unless I have a stupid volume and it has to be a set time, which kind of defeats the purpose of having it. Which is a real shame because um yeah, which which a, is yeah, yeah, it's really a shame. Yeah, there's no point in having something that runs at 4K Ultra HD and then when you try to listen to it, you can't even hear the fucking thing. But you know, here we go. Yeah, it's it's weird because it, it it does seem to be Christopher Nolan films always seem to have the biggest challenges with the sound, and what he's probably someone who seems to put like people's sound systems under the biggest pressure. At the same time, I did when when you mentioned this to me, I, I, I looked it up and I noticed that apparently previous models of the Xbox struggled with this as well, and Microsoft and IT companies generally do have this really nasty habit of you know putting product out and going, all right, there you go. And there will be things that don't work properly, but with an update of firmware, something coming along down the line on their roadmap, it, it will get fixed. So fingers crossed it before too long it gets fixed and you can watch things in HD on that because that's one of the selling points of, of, of these consoles, isn't it? Well, yeah, that was that was the thing. I remember you saying, try this. So the, the usual, have you tried turning it off and on again? And I tried updating yeah, yeah, yeah. it because it doesn't just play. You have to have like an app to install from the Microsoft Store. So I tried uninstalling that. What would happen on the old Xbox models? So it, um, I had the Xbox One x it would it would work for a little bit it would like have a little bit of like a and then after about five minutes it's kind of, it kind of calms down whereas this was like for the first 30 minutes of interstellar it's just like couldn't hear anything from the film so i don't yeah. know if it will be a firmware update i don't know if there's actually going to be that much demand for it because people don't actually watch yeah it. Well, fingers crossed there'll be a product update i don't know i mean people still buy like people still buy their game, games on disc a little bit as well don't they i know they are moving very much to streaming yeah, and downloading the only appeal with disc right now is that it is cheaper but you do you do lose a day to installing the game because these things are like 80 to 95 gigabytes so unless you've got incredible internet yeah. it does take about six to nine hours a day to install so that's the only and the only reason yeah. discs are better is because you can um you can get them for about 10 pounds cheaper but if you buy them you can transfer them yeah, on the xbox uh, anytime so yeah usually even microsoft if people berate them enough on twitter they will do a product update and it'll yeah. work fingers crossed they'll update the app Okay, so what I got for, I got two things, well, actually three things. Um, it's like the Spanish Inquisition sketch. Um, I got Tenet and The Handmaiden on, on Blu-ray. Um, Tenet, obviously, I, I just asked for it. I said, look, if you're getting me, you know, if you're getting me something, my, my wife got me Tenet. Interestingly, she accidentally bought me the 4K version of it, um, which is fine because it's got, it's got two discs. It's got the Blu-ray disc as well. Yeah. But I now have this, I now have this temptation to go out and buy a 4K Blu-ray player. So now I've got a 4K Blu-ray, but I'm resisting it because it's a lot of money. Um, Are they actually quite uh, good? The other one is a I, good one. Is a you're looking one. north of 300 quid for a really good Fuck one? Fuck off, really? Yeah, for a re- I mean, you can get you can get cheaper ones, but you're not you're not going to. Wow, it's probably I, not worth. I think I'm still stuck in the the era of Blu-ray players being down to like you know 40 to 50 quid. That's mental. Wow. Yeah, but ordinary Blu-ray players are that cheap, but at the moment you're 4K. I think people aren't buying as many films on disc as they used to be anyway. Sure, um, right. And it's just, I think, the the 4K system, I think I was wondering if it was maybe going to be like vinyl. Do you know what I mean? The fact that people have got yeah. into vinyl again has kind of saved the sound, the, saved the stereo system, do you know what I mean, instead of people just having a smart speaker in Spotify. So maybe that will be the impetus for people to have it. But at the moment they're still charging a lot for that because I think 4K – 
people you know watch a or stream a film on 4K and it's like oh yeah this is brilliant but it's not really really 4K if you really want to see something in 4K at home then you 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 need a proper player for it so we'll see uh, and the handmaiden is the korean film by park chan wook uh, my wife uh, uh, bless her she decided to do some research she's often a bit hesitant about buying me a film because then she'll buy it for me and realize that i've already got it but she did some research she looked at the looked at the shelves and go, oh, he hasn't got this and thought well he likes he likes that he keeps banging on about korean films so i'll buy him that so you know couldn't be happier with the gift she's brought me a classic movie which i didn't have on blu-ray so that was great yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's i bought one more with my with my christmas vouchers which i'll come back to um uh, all, all will become clear later not as interesting as it sounds um so yeah that was it i mean we like we say we um i haven't watched tenet or handmaiden yet i mean although i did watch tenet twice last year it's just christmas is is tough you know in fact i, di- I didn't even watch a film all the way through on itv4 over christmas huh. i went a whole month since the last uh podcast without watching a film on itv4 which is unheard of because it's all like the christmas telly yeah yeah i don't i don't but, have um, interesting christmas films either to be fair yeah yeah so um the uh, the next thing we were going to discuss is your idea for a a feature. Just because we've had like Christmas and everything else, and it was a bit of a weird time for trying to see people, we thought, why don't we, you know, give people a chance to have some flights of fancy and have your fantasy film themed holiday dinner? So Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate, uh, and you suggested six people from the world of film that you would like to have a holiday dinner and who you'd sit with. And since it was your idea, mate, why don't you take it away? So yeah, I thought this would just be like a nice, interesting thing just to just for something different and new to do. And maybe, you know, the listeners can comment or engage themselves, but I actually haven't written down or thought of any. I thought the best way to do this is just think of six people on the spot because they're the first people that would come to mind. Um, Yeah. Just kind of like my instinctive reaction. So we, we didn't really set any rules for this. Um, so I'm going to pick. Yeah, I, I, I accidentally imposed my own rules, but you go ahead with whatever you want to do. I'm going to pick people that are from the world of film at any point in history. So they can be dead alive. You can, they can come to this dinner. And the first two that I think of when I think of um, stars in the past are Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris, because those two were great together and they'd be a really good laugh. They were um, some of the stories I was watching a compilation. That, that, would, that would be a, this is already a lively evening that you're hosting. Yeah. I was watching a compilation of Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris's best stories about their drinking together. And it would be incredible. Yeah. 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 Um, I would have Jimmy Stewart as well because he's one of my favorite actors. Um, yeah. And there's just a legend and a you know a colossus of uh, the film industry. And then I thought, right, well, we'll have three from the past. We'll have three people that are still alive. So I went for um, Quentin Tarantino because he's off his mm-hmm. rocker, but he's also uh, really intelligent when it comes to uh, the film industry. I then have there would be no awkward there would be no awkward silences at the dinner table, would there? Exactly, because yeah. <laughs> And I'd go with uh, Sigourney Weaver because she's probably the biggest badass I've seen on screen. She's been in some of my favorite films. And I watched Galaxy Crest recently, and that's probably influenced my decision a little bit. Very good. And my final one, I was torn between a few, but um, I think I'm going to go for Christian Bale. Because, again, he's completely off his rocker, and it'd be a lively evening uh, with having him there. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's one of my favorite actors. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a, a an excellent but potentially edgy evening. Oh yeah, someone's getting <laughs> shot. <You're> like, <laughs> probably best yeah, to so, wait, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I looked at this list uh, and I kind of I don't know I must have misread the the message and I went only actors and I I I just it, it, just for no reason at all just decided to only do people who were still alive. 
Okay. Um, literally no reason why. I just thought, you, you know, you know, we, you know, discussing, oh yeah, let's do that. And then I, I just sort of accidentally imposed a couple of rules. But I think the people I came up with are the sort of people you might have a, a lively dinner with. There's not going to uh, be the first person. There's I no thought Lorraine was, Kelly moment in this. Sorry, have you seen that thing with Lorraine Kelly on the last leg and James Acaster? No. <laughs> Where uh, Adam Hills, I think, uh, poses the question. He goes, um, <laughs> "Hero of the year." And then Lorraine Kelly Kelly goes, <laughs> "She goes, now hear me out." Piers Morgan and James Acaster just goes, go fuck yourself to Lorraine Kelly. That's what Piers Morgan, who's never been in a film, obviously, but there's not going to be a Piers Morgan moment in this, is there? No. Okay. I, I really hope not. Um, so the first one I thought of was Gerard Depardieu. Go fuck yourself. No, I'm joking. <laughs> and that's partly because I've loved... <laughs> <laughs> No, it's partly because he's done some amazing performances that I absolutely love, uh, the best of which I think is Cyrano de Bergerac. But also similar to what you said about Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole, he's, he, he, I think he'd be lively. I mean, anyone who gets so desperate for a pee that he has to like go in a bottle at his, uh, at his seat on a, on a flight is, um, is someone you know who's going to have, have, make for a lively evening. <laughs> that um, actually happened. The, the, the other thing I noticed that – pardon? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, because I think he'd, I think he'd, uh, I think he'd refueled a bit in in the in the lounge before he got on the plane. They haven't even properly taken off. Uh, oh dear. Um, and the other thing I thought was, it's not some of these people are among my favourite like actors, but sometimes it's a case of your favourite actor might not be that interesting to have at a dinner party. Like I don't reckon Robert De Niro would be all that much fun at a party. Yeah. Um, so that's why he's not on my listing, though. I think he's a great actor and everything. Um, the next one on my list actually is Sigourney Weaver. Yes, um, and you, very and similar you reasons. Yeah, yeah, I, I, just exactly the same reasons as you. Um, next one's George Clooney because he's while well, he's he's also made some good films that I like. I think he's a smart bloke. I think he'd he's he's knowledge about a lot of different things. I thought he'd be quite fun to, at a dinner party, and he's he's quite funny as well. So he's one of those people who you could have quite an, quite a serious conversation with, but 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 a laugh with as well. Yeah. I reckon. Um, next one this is purely just to make it a lively evening is Miriam Margulies oh god yeah <laughs> just because you know what uh, you know I think similar to when you were talking about like Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris although she's not got the same acting profile she's the sort of person who you know nothing stays quiet when she's there um, Jack Nicholson was my other one again I mean he's, he's a terrific actor but he's probably got a million stories um, yeah. also had Denzel Washington just you know I think Denzel would be like great and, and my last one was Kathy Bates because uh, I think she'd be a laugh as well, actually. Um, I think she'd, from what I've seen her, I think she'd just, uh, she'd be quite down to earth and, and good to have a chat with, I think. No, very good. So, yeah, I mean, I think your your dinner would probably result in running out of alcohol sooner than mine and probably at, le- at least two more fights than my than my event. But I yeah, think they would gone, both be interesting. Evenings. I've gone for an evening that's fun for everyone, whereas you've gone for an evening that's interesting for you. You're going to try and engage with your guest. I'm just going to see how much like chaos yeah. I'm going to cause in 45 minutes. There's going to be carnage. There's <laughs> going to be carnage at your fantasy dinner party. That's for sure. So the next thing we wanted to mention in this roundup was um, some film-based New Year's resolutions for 2021. I don't know if you had a chance to to um, come up with a couple of these. I think just setting aside more time to watch films. I'm obviously working quite a fair bit at the moment, but I think speaking to my manager at work the other day, because the Christmas period is over, my hours are going to be going down. I won't be working five days yeah. a week, or sometimes maybe three days a week. So just trying to set aside a bit more time to watch films instead of coming home, sticking on a TV show on Netflix, despite the temptation to just stick on a TV show because TV is, in my opinion, overtaking 
the film industry. Uh, I've just started watching that the the history of swear words with Nicolas Cage, and it's fucking incredible. Just Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage was dangerously close to entering my um entering my uh, my fantasy dinner party, but uh, I decided against it. Yeah, I, I think he, he would be he would be lively as well. I had to have some serious options in there. The problem is. The problem is, if Nicolas Cage is anything like how he appears on film, right, you would never know whether you were going to get serious, sombre, like sensible Nicolas Cage or batshit crazy Nicolas Cage, because different different types of Nicolas Cage can appear depending on his mood. Oh, yeah, he's he's dangerous. He's a dangerous... <laughs> he's, he's volatile. Yeah, he's dangerous. <laughs> dangerous and unpredictable. But yeah, just so was that was that your resolution for the evening? Yeah. Anything else? No, just setting aside more time to actually watch films. So I, I resolution. Yeah, I, I came up with a couple. One of which is I'm going to set myself a target to try and rewatch more of my favourite old movies. Okay. Because um, I was just thinking the other day. Do you remember we were talking about City of God and what a great film it was and how it might have deserved to win the Oscar? Yeah. And and I was thinking, yeah, what a great film that was. That was fantastic. In some ways, it's like. It's like Scorsese's Goodfellas, only better. I, I, I absolutely love that film. Really but the, the next, my next, my next thought was how long it's been since I've seen it. I haven't watched it in years, um, and I thought, you know what? There's some amazing films, uh, you know, that I've I love. I've watched a lot, and I should. Tr- I'd, I'd like to rewatch them. You know, I just, you know, um, rather than rewatch another. You know, again, I think my my main kind of thing is is I will just tune into literally any film if it's on telly, and that's probably not the best use of my time. Um, so this month I've been trying to watch Amadeus, but it's it's like three hours long, and I haven't found a single three hour slot. So I'm about halfway through it at the moment. Um, my other um, uh, New Year's resolution is to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. Uh, and what that's going to be is I've picked my twelve favorite John Carpenter films. And I'm going to watch one a month, right? Um, what just because with? that's uh, well. This is the other thing I want to say. Well, how shall I do this? Shall I do this in ascending or descending order of, of how much I like them or in chronological order or whatever like this? And eventually I said, I'm going to start at the bottom with IMDb's lowest rated film uh, of, of John Carpenter's from my list, Often be, and which is fine because even things that aren't rated that high on there can often be a bit underrated. And I'm just going all the way to the top. So first, the first one is Vampires and the last one is, uh, is The Thing. Okay. Because obviously The Thing is his highest rated film. So for January, I watched John Carpenter's Vampires and I, I basically spent my Christmas money on that. Um, well, not all of it, just a little bit. And um, to get that on Blu-ray, because I realized I didn't have it on Blu-ray. So I watched John Carpenter's uh, Vampires this month, which um, I, don't, I don't Have you seen that, the James Woods film? No, I haven't. I've not watched a lot of John Carpenter, actually. It's kind of like John Carpenter. The interesting thing with John Carpenter, that this film is a bit like Near Dark when we talk about Catherine Bigelow and it's one, one of my favorite one of the early films. And it's similar because Catherine Bigelow was trying to make a Western with vampires. And John Carpenter is always trying to make a Western, even though he's known for horror. He's actually, usually he's, he's, he's influenced by Westerns. And this is kind of like a Western vampire movie because it's all out in New Mexico and it's kind of good guys versus bad guys. Um, it's really underrated. It's only rated 6.2 on IMDb, which is lower than Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Um, it's nowhere near my favourite John Carpenter film, but I did really enjoy it. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a fun, gory B-movie where lots of vampires and lots of vampire um, hunters end up you know, disemboweled or killed in gruesome ways with a great John Carpenter like music score in it. A lot of fun. Not, not essential John Carpenter, but good fun. And because it was a James Woods film and, uh, you know, despite him being a bit of a Trumploid arsehole on Twitter, I'm a big fan of his acting. Um, so I decided to make this month's impromptu top 10 um, the uh, my favourite James Woods films. So in no particular order, my impromptu top 10 favourite James Woods films are, well, there is 
no particular order apart from the first one, Once Upon a Time in America, because that is my favorite film of his and my favorite film of all time. But the rest of the top 10 is Videodrome. Don't know if you've seen that, the Cronenberg film. Probably not. <laughs> you know, a lot of these Sal- films are probably going to be like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Salvador is about um, troubles in El Salvador in the 80s. Hercules, where he did the voice of Hades. Oh, okay, I like yeah, that. No, I've seen that. <laughs> Everyone's seen that. The Hard Way, where he plays a cop who um, who has to babysit um, a film star played by Michael J. Fox, who's, who's uh, being a method actor learning to be a cop. Um, the Onion Field, an old cop movie, Against All Odds, uh, Cop, True Believer, and Nixon. So there are my 10 favorite James Woods films for the impromptu top 10. Okay. He is very good in Hercules, I would say. I know he's been in some great films, but... Yeah, he's very good in Hercules. That's why he's on my list. Perfect. Now for the classic feature where we try and watch something from our list of great, worthy, or more highly recommended films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films, and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on great works like Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, Le Diabolique, Let the Right One In, David Cronenberg's Crash, Das Boot, Casino, and The Blues Brothers. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, partly due to various listener recommendations, and also now that James is co-hosting and looking at classics he hasn't got around to seeing yet. So currently our watch list looks like this. Wages of Fear, Train to Busan, Hell or High Water, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, CSA, The Confederate States of America, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, and Boyhood. This month, we're turning to a film that has earned classic status despite only being released relatively recently and causing confusion among the hosts of this podcast and some of our listeners. I've been meaning to get around to watching it since it was released, which is why it's on my watch list, and it just didn't happen until now. This month, we are watching the epic South Korean zombie thriller, Train to Busan. So this is uh, this made a bit of a splash when it came out. It was the biggest hit of the year in Korea when it was made, and it's sort of one of those uh, foreign films that crossed over uh, into the West. Uh, it even uh, got a sequel, which came out in 2020, called uh, Peninsula. Um, but James, had you had you seen this before we decided to do it for the podcast? No, I've only ever watched one Korean film, and that was Parasite. So, yeah, I'd never heard of this thing. Yeah, so we... Um, yeah, so we, we like a zombie film, you and I. We've got our, we've got our thoughts on zombie films, what, what constitutes a zombie film and what doesn't. I mean, the first thing I would say is I didn't think this was exactly a zombie film. I mean, it just people say that because it's kind of the shorthand to describe what this film is. But actually, this is more like something like 28 Days Later or The Crazies or something like that because um, the people are infected rather than, you know, reanimated corpses. So while it's kind of the same because, the you know, the, a lot of the conventions are very similar, it's more like, uh, like I say, uh, 28 Days Later, Jennifer Cronenberg's Rabbit, Rabbit or Planet Terror. Did you, I mean, did you feel like it was, I, I mean, I'm, am I being more pedantic than you about this? I don't think, it, I don't think it's, it's wrong to be pedantic. I just don't, I don't see the point in trying to differentiate between the whole, it's a virus, it's a zombie thing. Because The Walking Dead tried to kind of blend the two with, it's a virus that infects everyone. Spoilers, if you haven't seen The Walking Dead, it gets shit after about six seasons. But um, I, w- I would say five. Ooh. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it tries to blame the idea that they are reanimated corpses that can only come back as reanimated corpses because they've been infected and everyone on Earth, on Earth is infected by it. But I don't really care. It's just the, the quality of the film. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they're zombies. They are yeah. zombies. They're people that are trying to eat other people. Yeah, yeah. That they're trying to... So... 
Yeah. The, um, the, the main difference usually is that uh, this is this is fast zombies, essentially, isn't it? These rapid. these are attackers that can move quite fast, very rapid, very frightening. I think these are the fastest zombies. 28 days later were yeah. the fastest yeah. zombies, but these, these guys are... Well, these zombies are trying to catch a train, and right. everyone goes a bit faster when they're trying to catch a train. Especially in South Korea, where they fucking run on time. You can go and fuck yourself, Scott Rail. Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, There's no running for trains in Scotland. So, it's never fucking there. You know, if you run for the train, you'll overtake it. Um, <laughs> so, so the director of this film is a guy called Yon Sang-ho, and he mainly did animated films before this. And actually, in the same year that he did this film, he actually came out with a, an animated uh, prequel uh, called Soul Station, which goes into a little bit more. So he's, he's an animator who went into live-action films. Uh, the main actors are Gong Yu as the dad. Uh, he's sort of uh, a reasonably well-known leading man over there. Kim Su An plays the uh, the little girl, and Ma Dong Seok as the big beefy bloke who helps fight the zombies on the train. Yeah, and the favorite. pregnant wife is played by uh, Jung Yu Min. That guy was my favorite. The big guy. yeah, he was a big, he was a solid guy, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the the background to this is this is a, a biotech outbreak has led to people becoming infected and, and being enraged and turning into zombies. Um, personally, I prefer slow zombies to fast zombies, although that's mainly because I think this. I mean, I, apart from Twenty Eight Days Late, which I love, I thought those the uh, the Zack Snyder remakes of the Romero films remade the zombies fast. They don't do anything for me. That just felt like an unnecessary remake. Um, we'll come back to that. Um, and it's more creepy. I think this was more. Um, uh, you know what this was like? You know how the Alien, the Ridley Scott original, is a horror film, whereas Aliens is more of an action film? Yeah. I thought this was like a th- – this had more action elements. It was gripping, and I found it very exciting, but it's it, slightly different that it's not kind of – it's not doing quite the same uh, work to build a creepy horror atmosphere, which is fine. It was doing something else. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't trying to be that film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was an intentional, intentional choice to make it more of an action film because there there are a couple of moments where they're on the train um, – where you know they've got to kind of hide away spoilers. I mean, I'm not. I don't know why I'm just putting a disclaimer in front of it. But there's parts where they have to like hide in toilets and try and stare at the views yeah, and yeah. stare at the you know the view of the zombies. And then like there's a zombie right there at the door. And I don't know if that's the director trying to scare you or he doesn't want to scare you too much, but still kind of keep the heart rate you know up and mm-hmm. keep your pulse going. But yeah, yeah, I didn't mind that it wasn't too scary. I'm not the biggest fan of like scary films. I prefer action films. I'm not. I, I've never understood the appeal of. Yeah, things like paranormal activity to just raise their blood pressure and reduce their life expectancy by you know four years but um yeah no this this film was fucking awesome it absolutely kicks arse in every scene it's so good yeah it was very clever i mean again don't want to give too much of the plot away but because you're on a train that creates a whole new set of problems doesn't it for the survivors they're on a train there are human survivors on a train and zombies on the train and and, you know how do you you know how do you cope with that you know it's not quite the same challenge as trying to stop someone you know listening to their phone on the quiet carriage right you've got some serious problems here go ahead mate so it just it does create a totally different dynamic because from you know what we've tried what other you know films and tv series and whatnot we've seen before is that whether it's a slow or a fast zombie it's all about creating space between yourself and the zombies whether it's slow zombies and just simply trying to yeah, outrun them yeah. or fast zombies getting in a car and driving up the country and getting away from them whereas this one you are yeah. it's like the complete opposite it's how do you get through those zombies so to speak or you know work around it and um things like that and it's just it, it's yeah definitely I mean, that worked really well i mean it's similar in a sense to george romero's day of the dead in 85 although those are slow zombies there's a lot of um, being stuck in a corridor, you're in a confined space with zombies, which yeah. creates a whole, you know, as you say, a whole new set of problems. 
Um, I'll tell you what also worked for me. I mean, you've you, you, you've traveled on trains a lot, so have I. Did you find yourself gritting your teeth and getting really fucking annoyed when the announcers say, oh, this train's going to terminate here, and then it doesn't, and they're saying they go to the next station, and it doesn't, and they try and get off the train, realize they can't, and try and get back on the train. I'm like, oh, that's a, I'm, I was reliving a lot of really bad train journeys when all that shit was happening. At least the train was running. Remember that train I was meant to be, uh, I was coming down to London from Glasgow? And it went through Carlisle, and nobody told us it was going through Carlisle. And then nobody, and then you message the guys on Twitter saying, "What well, this train? Where is it? It's like it's meant to be in Edinburgh. Well, it's in fucking Carlisle." They had no idea. I was just happy to see a train that was moving. I was just happy to see a train that was going from some place to some place. Maybe not the place it was meant to be going, but it was moving. You know, it was. Yeah, it would be, I mean, a, a British-based version of this, a British-based version of this train. There'd be a lot of zombies standing on the platform watching a train zoom past and looking at each other. Zombies looking at each other and going. <laughs> Getting on the we're just throwing in lots of train jokes today. Yeah, fuck yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, I'm okay. saying it again. Fuck Scott Rail. Fuck Richard Branson and his fucking shitty trains. Virgin trains can go and fuck. Fuck every train company that that fucking exists. Fuck them all. Sorry. Yeah. Fuck Network so, Rail for uh, charging uh, me thirty p to go for a piss. Go fuck yourselves. Sorry. Got a lot of, <laughs> got a lot of internalized aggressions <laughs> towards trains. <laughs> and he's doing yeah, like it's, it's tank engine as well. What's going on? <laughs> Uh, there's a um, one, one of the one of the listener messages because obviously been, we've been mentioning train to, um, train to Busan on previous messages because each month we on previous podcasts because each month we say look this is our watch list you know sometimes people you know volunteer what what should you watch next and I remember someone saying that they you know they're, they're not big on zombie films they've just seen so many that it's kind of you know it's 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 a bit you know worn a bit thin for them yeah. but he was very impressed by the train service. Um, so I think there's a, there's certain there's definitely a British response to watching a, a really sort of shit hot sort of you know developed Asian developed nation that knows how to run a train. We're all sitting there going, yeah, that's what it should be fucking like. In fact, you know what? I don't mind the zombies. If I could get if I could get to work that fast, I would I would fucking deal with the zombies. Oh yeah, I'd take an um, infection and become a rabid brainy thing zombie if it meant I got from fucking A to B on time. This is the, the thing. People are watching this thinking, oh look, it's yeah, a train definitely. a train service that runs properly. That no. Britain is just so unique at how shit their fucking trains are. I've been on trains in Italy. The trains in Italy. Italy, a country we think of people that are just completely, you know, not lazy, but their country's in fucking ruin. They're in trillions of debt. Their fucking trains can run on time. Yeah, they they don't have a reputation for giving a shit about efficiency, but their trains are better than ours for sure. Mental. But yeah, enough about trains before I... (laughs) I I had one one sort of podcast listener who was a, a sort of you know, not convinced about this film. Everyone else loved it. Someone else said, I don't know what you think of these criticisms. They said they felt it took a long time to get going. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he's the biggest fan of Korean films. He, he tends to find Korean films sort of outstay their welcome. He found that this was longer than it needed to be. And he found some of the kind of story points a bit cliched. And, and obviously there are, you know, look, there's a, you know, there's a, a man with his pregnant wife. He's trying to save his pregnant wife. There's a guy trying to reconnect with his daughter. You know, there are different archetypes. You know, it's, it's always, these films always have, human characters who respond in different ways to the threat. And I don't think all any of those storylines were 100% new. I didn't find it cliche, but, you know, there was one person, you know, on the listeners who, who who really wasn't keen. Everyone else I've spoken to or got a message from absolutely loves this film. This has been a massive hit. It, it, it's, it grossed higher than Captain America Civil War in Korea in 2016. This was right. an absolute, absolute top, um, top hit. To address that criticism, I mean, if that listener just feels that the Korean films take too long to get going, that's... You know, that's them. I didn't. I, I see where he's coming from on Parasite. Parasite did seem to go on for ages. Was this? Or maybe I didn't notice it as much because there's a lot more going on. You know, there's a lot more 
action and a lot more zombie fighting was say for a film like Parasite it is it's a different kind of film obviously it's it's a lot slower it's a much more it's a slow burner kind of thing so I didn't notice it particularly but maybe yeah Parasite took a lot of time to set up its its environment yeah I mean I, I didn't think I mean I thought it was it was just two hours which is shorter than than uh, Dawn of the Dead um and I think it was it was you were on a train full of zombies going absolutely apeshit by about the twenty minute mark, I, I didn't find it that way. But you know, Although, it was, yeah. you, know, you know what it's like when there is an when there is one outlier out of an otherwise unanimous kind of a, you know praise for a film. It just sort of stuck in my head. But yeah, look, I mean, I, I thought this was excellent. I haven't seen the sequel. Um, I've heard that the sequel's not as good as the first one, but, but we'll find out. Um, um, but no, I, I, but yeah, I mean, it's I mean, generally speaking, the Koreans they do know how to make a film over there, and and they certainly know how to make a zombie film here. No, this this film is even though it came out in two thousand sixteen, it's got new ways of trying to introduce a zombie virus. Like the first scene is, uh, I thought the way you know the bit I'm talking about in the uh, on the road. Yeah, yeah. The way they try and introduce it is without actually having to say anything, because you know you get zombie films where like even in yeah, yeah. Walking Dead, they just throw a lot of like you know verbal diarrhea at you. Where it's like this is it, and yeah, like, it, just, it just shows you it without saying a word, and it's like a little four or five second thing, which I thought was really good. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially, you've got. There's often two ways that, that sort of lazy ways to set up a zombie film. One is, as you say, to have a lot of exposition. We're like, oh, come on, guys. And the other one is where they decide to just for like the 198th time go, oh, there's an infection. What is this? I've been bitten. I don't know what it is. And like, I, I remember I thought I'd watch Fear the Walking Dead because people said the first few series are really good. I was getting really tired of Walking Dead. I thought I might watch that instead. And three episodes in, everyone's still not sure if it's a zombie outbreak. And I was like, oh, fucking hell, give your audience some credit. We know it's a zombie outbreak. Fucking get on with it. You know, um, but that's what it was. No, I thought this was really good. I mean, I thought they just went, you know, look, here's how a film works, beginning, middle, and end. Um, we're gonna, you know, there were some really excellent, excellent action sequences. You know, the zombies kind of breaking through kind of glass barriers and stuff, and pouring onto and off trains, which is very exciting stuff. Um, yeah, I thought it was really good. No, that that bit an hour in with the big beefy guy, yeah. the dad, and yeah. the kid from Parasite, the baseball kid. That was yeah, yeah. Uh, that might be the best scene I think I've ever. The Koreans know how to do scenes like that. Old boy is an old. Oh, definitely. Oh yeah, the, the, the fight that. scene in Old Boy. Fucking hell. The yeah, Koreans yeah. know their shit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But no, I think I think a, I think if we're, if we're going to draw a conclusion from this film, it's that the Koreans know their shit. Yeah, that, that's it. That should be that. It shouldn't be you know five stars from a Empire magazine, a thrilling action right? It should just be us two saying Koreans know their shit. That should be the that should be on every poster, <laughs> even though it's already been released. But that should be on the DVD yeah, cover. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, they should t- they should put a recommendation on the DVD case and, and give us you know give us some credit. Yep, Koreans know their shit. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring overlooked and underrated films to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. For episode nine, we're looking at a classic war film, which for a variety of reasons is not mentioned as much as it should be in the list of the genre or in discussions of the best films by its director. This month's hidden gem is Sam Peckinpah's 1977 film, Cross of Iron. So James, I think this is another one that you watched for the first time for this uh, uh, for this podcast, isn't it? Yeah, never heard of it. I've heard of Sam, Sam Peckinpah, obviously, um, but I've yeah. never heard of this film. I, I 
I think I would associate him more with like kind of like westerns and things like that. That's exactly it. Um, yeah. But um, cross around, but- I heard a cross around and I thought, this is a war film. And then I saw Sam Peckinpah and I just didn't put two and two together and thought, what's going on here? But no, it was my first time watching it. Yeah, I mean, so my background to this, I mean, I think obviously everyone grows up watching war films. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, kind of every other film was a war film and every pretty much every war film was a World War II war film. Yeah, yeah. and and you had Where Eagles Dare, you had Force 10 from Navarone, you had, you know, uh, The Longest Day, Bridge Too Far, all of these films. And when this film came out, and it was, uh, actually, this is set on the German side, it's like, oh, right, well, that, that's different. Um, I hadn't seen Das Boot by that point, but this was the first film that I'd, the first film that I'd seen where, you know the story is being told from the point of view of the the German soldiers, not in the sense that the film wants the Germans to win, but to say, well, what, what you know, what's what, it's like, kind of like saying, what's a war like for the losing side, for people who are demoralised and you know they're human beings who, are, who you know just realise that they're on the wrong side of history, and on the wrong side of the history means probably being wiped out. Um, the basic story is that it's 1943 on a Russian front. The German uh, forces are on the Eastern Front are on the retreat and. Are, by then, they know they're losing the war. Um, there's a hard-pressed battalion uh, on the on a, a strategic foothold on a peninsula, you know, sort of uh, somewhere in Russia, under constant bombardment as they try to maintain a strategic foothold. The story kicks off when an ambitious officer called Captain Stransky, who's from like a prominent German family, has volunteered, requested a transfer to the Russian front from France so that he can win the Iron Cross. And I think he's got some perhaps... Um, over-romantic notions of what it's going to be like to be seeing real action after being sat there in France where the war's all, you know, essentially over and they're just occupying it. Um, the the sergeant under his command, Sergeant Steiner, played by James Coburn, has already won the Iron Cross. So this new captain's trying to bond with him and saying, oh, what's it like to win the Iron Cross? And I said, you know, fuck you. Do. You know, there's, you can quite see that from the beginning he doesn't like him. That officer turns out to be like a, an arsehole and a coward, falls out with him. Uh, Steiner is wounded and has to rest up. When he comes back, the, uh, the the main officer says he wants the battle to be written up to say that he was brave so that he can apply for the Iron Cross. So when Steiner refuses, he sends him and his men on a suicide mission behind enemy lines where they've got to try and get back. Um, and it, it tells the really quite brutal story of what they do to try and get back from behind enemy lines. Yeah, you've summed up. And, I mean, it was brutal. That's the first. I think that's the first thing I said to you because I, I text you as yeah. I'm watching them. I say I've just watched Train to Busan. This is what I thought. Of. I've already seen the Cry Kid, but this is what I think. And then, of course, of Iron. I think you just said very brutal. <laughs> I think that's yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I mean, Sam Peckinpah was one of the people who um, was renowned for taking kind of violence in films to, to new levels as the, as the censorship sort of fell apart in the '60s, and and you know, filmmakers said, "Well, I'm you know now I'm going to tell the real story." Uh, um, he did films like The Wild Bunch, which was renowned for being like one of the most violent films at the time and seen as a brilliant film and kind of showing a, you know, a more realistic portrait of that kind of thing. He, he also did a film called Straw Dogs, which was in, incredibly controversial. But like you say, he's more um, he's more known for Westerns like that um, rather than, than a war film. This is the only war film he did, uh, unless you count some of his Westerns, which were about, you know, um, you know, conf- you know Union armies and stuff. But this, you know, there were Westerns. Um and uh, although he did vary his output, it's his only war film, and it doesn't get much of a mention. Like you say, you were surprised, Sam Peck and Paul. But, you know, just it's not. It's really although the style of the film and the themes of the film are very much in his kind of general area. It's really kind of really different to see it in you know German army uniforms. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, no, it was. Um, it was. 
it's obviously it's obviously from 1977, so a bit of the action is quite dated and things like that, and it's not as polished, and it's very yeah. A lot of the action and sh- the sequences are quite cheesy, but um, the the scene that sticks out to me is the one in the uh, is it like a it's like in a Russian little house with all the women in it, mm-hmm. and that was the scene that, that didn't seem too cheesy, didn't seem too you know <laughs> like 1970s. That was quite a quite a dark uh, scene that one mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah it's, it's interesting that obviously the uh techniques have moved on since then um you know there's so there's no cgi it's all kind of real you know blood bags and everything else um and the other things that are interesting about this sam peckinpah um had a bit of a troubled production director in this film because he had a lot of personal issues he was always sort of a heavy user of drink and alcohol Basically, he's a very talented director, but a complete wreck of a human being. Right. And there were days where like, he would shoot for as long as he could and then shoot the next day, and then he would drink himself into a stupor and they, they couldn't shoot until he, until he sobered up. Right, okay. Um, and the other interesting thing is that they, um, they had a fraction of the money that they would have liked for this film. They got $4 million and then they went over budget to about six. Um, they had, I mean, they had trouble just getting the resources to make this film because um, the guy who produced the film was... He was a bit of a shyster. It was his first film. What he would say is he would tell you how much money he had and then he would just disappear for months and you're trying to pay your crew and you're trying to shoot in Yugoslavia because it's cheaper, but everyone wants paying up front and they're chasing up this producer. They got to the point where they actually took the one working tank that they had and drove it to his office and uh, pointed the turret through his window uh, until he gave up the money that they needed to keep to keep <laughs> shooting. Um, Incredible. And one of the reasons they only had one working tank is that, you know, in the 70s at this point, there's only so many um, working tanks left and there's no CGI and there isn't quite the same kind of effects department to, to, to build them, um, you know, like, like they probably had for Fury. And almost every other military resource or, you know, reenactment, you know, memorabilia, anything else in tanks that they could find was at that time being used for the filming of Bridge Too Far, which was being filmed at the same time. So this is really the poor relation to a Bridge Too Far. Right, okay. But obviously, it kind of it kind of works into the film because everyone is like tired. They're not really feeling very supported. They're stuck. They're they're there for a long time, working with limited kind of support to try and to try and get through it. Which is exactly what the people in the film are going through. If you see what I mean. So it kind of it kind of suits the mood of the film that that this fam- film was been made in that way. If you see what I mean. Yeah. And I mean, the, you know, it's the, the one way that it's typical Sam Peckinpah is that all of his films, one to one extent or another, are about a band of men surrounded by death and it's all about sticking sticking to your code and and looking after your mates and that's more important than whether you win the war or whose side you're on and that's definitely that's the whole ethos of this film james coburn is there to kind of look after his men and that's it Uh, and all of that stuff about the iron cross and heroism and bravery and military he certainly doesn't support the you know the uh, the efforts of the third right to win the war but he's stuck in a war and he's gonna have to get through it and he's got to stick by his mates um, and obviously the film is pretty cynical about everyone involved. You've got like an officer who's only there to win a medal. You've got, you know, incompetent, you know, exasperated, tired, you know, officers who just can't run anything anymore. And they're, they're about to be overwhelmed by the Russians. So it's kind of, it's pretty bleak, isn't it? The whole thing's a pretty bleak film. Yeah, bleak. But I would agree. It's a bleak, brutal film. But no, it was, I don't think enjoyed's the right word, but it was like a surprise to see a film from 1977 that was as dark and as brutal as it was. Um it, 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 it really was like a, I mean, obviously there's a lot of dark and, uh, and kind of downbeat films in the seventies, but most war films back then, you know, generally told the story of the allies trying to win from the point of view of, we think the allies are the good guys and generally were, were, were 
mainly entertainment. I mean, even A Bridge Too Far, which I think is a terrific film and was just trying to tell the, the true story of what happened. It's it's not as kind of um, brutal as this in terms of its action. And uh, it certainly doesn't, you know, it certainly doesn't, you know, highlight, you know, all the human weakness that this film highlights, if you see what I mean. It doesn't try to paint or embellish itself in glory. It's just telling a story that's mm. pretty grim. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it, was, it was obviously. I remember watching this and going all the other films I'd seen. Obviously, you see a bit of blood and you see a bit of action, but when you just watch this, I just remember I was quite young watching this. My jaw just hit the floor at how kind of you know dark and tough it is, and it's got some typical pecking uh, directorial and technical touches, like he would film with several cameras at different speeds, so he would edit together these shots where an explosion is in uh, is in normal speed, and then someone falling back is in slow motion, and then he edits it all together afterwards, um, and. That was the thing. As pissed as he got during the uh, the shoot, if he got the shots, you could always edit together a fucking great movie with what he made, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is our hidden gem. It doesn't show up on many lists. When I was going online prior to doing this, I was looking at the list of like, you know, people's 50 favorite films or 100, 100 best war films of all time. This didn't show up on hardly any of them. So if you like a war film and you haven't seen Cross of Iron, I mean, I definitely think you should watch this because I think it's, it's one of those unusual films that shows the war from a different angle. And, um, yeah, you might not have seen it, and I think you're missing out if you haven't. Yeah, totally agree. Now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. For episode 9, we're looking at the two-decades-long story of various attempts to reboot the Conan the Barbarian film series. Where this comes from, and if you look at looking up lists of like famous unrealised projects, and that the most publicised version of that was when the Wachowskis um, had just uh, emerged fresh from the success of the first Matrix film, and in about the year 2000, one of the projects they were working on was to um, restart the Conan film series. Um, and that is part of an ongoing saga to try and get Conan going again. But, I mean, what they were doing there is they were trying to reconnect with Arnie after he'd been Conan in the 80s and get the film series going again. Um, for a bit of background, Conan the Barbarian was uh, was first written in 1932 by a guy called Robert E. Howard. He was a, a writer of pulp stories in the, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, he died aged 30 in 1936 by suicide, um, so he had a short... Um, writing career and with a, with a tragic end to it. But in that short time, he wrote dozens of stories, uh, including about Conan, and he helped popularize, uh, popularize the whole sword and sorcery genre. That's um, expanded into different kinds of fantasy today, everything from Lord of the Rings to Game of Thrones and The Witcher, but Conan was extremely influential in kind of building all that up. And he was, uh, he was friends with H.P. Lovecraft, who we've discussed in previous podcasts, uh, and H.P. Lovecraft, uh, he corresponded with a lot of writers and um, his influence kind of crept in, into other people's writing. So Robert E. Howard uh, gave his Conan stories a supernatural horror element. There's always evil magic and snake gods and such like in his stories. Um, other people continued the stories after his death. Uh, people like Robert Jordan, who uh, readers of uh, fancy novels will have heard of. Um, there were comic book adaptations of Conan in Marvel and Dark Horse. But where, where Conan got big in film and where we would tend to come in is in 1982 when Arnie was in the classic uh, Conan the Barbarian. I don't know if you've seen that film. Have you seen Conan the Barbarian? I haven't, actually. It's not, I, as much as I like The Witcher and that kind of genre, I've never been... I've not 
never been drawn to the idea of watching the Conan films of I don't know if it's just because I've seen Arnold Schwarzenegger's manic face in the original, and that 2011 one was just meant to be guff. So I've never just got I've never got round to watching them. Um, yeah, that, that's that's the thing. And I mean, the, the sad thing is, is that there's only really been one really good Conan film, and that's the original in 1982. That was John Milius, who we discussed when we were talking about um, the Dillinger film a couple of episodes ago, uh, and it kind of fitted into his kind of ethos of kind of like lone kind of. Uh, uh, lone heroes in the wilderness to do a Conan film. So in 1982, he made that. It was Conan, uh, Conan the Barbarian came out in 1982 and was Arnie's breakout hit. He'd been in a couple of films here and there, like Stay Hungry, which was about bodybuilding, and he'd been like a, a almost like a comic villain in a couple of movies. And then along came Conan the Barbarian, which said, look, here is a story which is perfectly settled for a big muscly guy who doesn't talk much, basically. And it's um, it's not a lot like the original stories in the sense that, I mean, the style and everything is very similar. He looks very much like the Conan hero, but Milius wrote his own story. But it was a big hit. Everyone loved it. I, I love that film. It's another kind of really quite, you know, if you like a bit of kind of bloody violence in a film, in a purely in an entertainment setting, you really love that. Um, unfortunately, they followed up with a sequel. Uh, and again, we always talk about the executives and how they ruin films, but here's another example. Instead of doing another film in the same style and standard as the first one, they decided to say, well, let's make it PG-rated so more people will watch it. So you had no blood, no sex, no violence, none of the things that people actually tuned in to watch the film for. Oh, phenomenal. Um, it's a shame because it's got Grace Jones as a worry woman in it, and she's actually quite good. Um, but nothing nothing measures up to the first uh, Conan the Barbarian 1982 film. It, James Earl Jones plays an absolutely immense villain, um, absolutely incredible villain. Um, there's fights against giant snakes. There is Arnie doing battle with a, with a sword. He, honestly, I don't think there's many films like Conan the Bar- Barbarian out there. There's a lot of cheapo um, barbarian-type stories, a lot of kind of 90s stuff like Zen and Warrior Princess and stuff. But Arnie's 82 film is really out on its own. It's the only film that's really captured the style of Conan in any way. Um, apart from that, there was a couple of animated series of Conan the, the Barbarian, which doesn't make sense to me. Animated, so for a younger audience, don't get that at all. Um, they did a live-action series. Do you know... Um, uh, Ralph Moller from Gladiator, yeah, the big they, kind they, of hefty German, German guy. Uh, yeah, he played him. I did a he, little bit he played Conan in a TV series, um, which was an absolute travesty. It was it was basically Hercules, the legendary journeys, but with Conan as the leader of the merry band. That's all it is. Um, so that, then along comes the Wachowskis. Now the Wachowskis were you know fresh from making a huge splash with uh, with the Matrix. They were big fans of Conan. They clearly shown what they could do with action and. Um, what they wanted to do was a film called The Legend of Conan. Um, and this was going to be a sequel to the original, ignoring the, the crap follow-up, um, Conan the Destroyer, going to go back to Conan the Barbarian. In the final shot of Conan the Barbarian, it says, uh, in later years, Conan would become a king of his own country, sitting on his own throne. But that's another story. And this is that other story. So they were going to do that with Conan's older. Other titles thrown around for this film, it could have been called King Conan or Crown of Iron. But the idea would be that Conan had battled and conquered and become king of a of a of a country somewhere, which is um, something that happened in the original stories uh, and certainly in some of the follow ups that other people wrote. You know, there were a lot of Conan stories. It was quite episodic. There were more short stories of Conan than novels. But he would, you know, fight here, fight there, do his various thing, and he became a king. And this is what happens when someone who's a barbarian and wants to live a wild life is now kind of sat on a throne and people are handing him glasses of wine. Maybe he gets sick of that, and wants to go out fighting again. Yeah. Uh, so they were doing that and he would have a grown up son by then. So you're talking about the early two thousands here. So Arnie would have been in his like fifties 
Um, and I think if you see any of the films that Arnie did around about then, I don't think any of them were actually any good. I think Arnie was on the, you know, some of the films Arnie did then, he was, he was like going downhill a bit, but he was still in perfectly good shape to do Conan, certainly as an older Conan. Uh, and what happened was the Wachowskis originally weren't going to direct, they were going to produce, and John Milius was going to direct his um, a sequel to his own film. Something a lot of people were really excited at the time. So, oh, John Milius is back, Arnie's back, Conan's back. Um, what went wrong was um, they got tied up making the Matrix sequels um, because they, they said they're going to direct you know two more Matrix sequels back-to-back, which took them years. Those films sort of got bigger than, you know, got out of control. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Matrix 2 and 3. I think they lost control of the films. Um, but it meant that for two or three years, John Millis was just sitting around going, are we going to do this? And the Wachowski's like, yeah, yeah, just let us get the Matrix finished. Um, and two things happened. Um, uh, the Wachowskis and John Millius kind of fell out over what kind of film they wanted to make together. Um, uh, so they weren't really agreeing about what kind of film they were going to make. And Arnie decided to run for governor of California. And uh, he decided that it wouldn't be appropriate for him to try and make films while he's, uh, while he's the governor of, uh, you know, governor of a state with a political career. So Arnie pulled out and then the Wachowskis said, well, we're not getting on with John Millius and we haven't got Arnie. We're gone. Um, at which point John Millius said, no, we can carry on. Someone else could play Conan. We'll find someone who can play an older Conan. But without Arnie on board and without the Wachowskis and their kind of clout backing him up, John Millius was just the guy who made some good films 20 years before uh, and he couldn't get any uh, couldn't get any backing. So the whole thing got lost in the wilderness. He couldn't find a buyer for the film. Um, and then in the mid to late 2000s, the studio that owned the rights, and again, we're going back, going back to complaining about executives here, the executives decided, no, 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 let's not try and create a sequel. Let's remake the original Conan the Barbarian film with a new guy, which led to the very shit 2011 film with Jason Momoa. Which I, have you seen that? I don't know if you bothered with it. No, nope. uh, like I said, I didn't bother with it because it was apparently rubbish, and I thought I'm not going to waste oxygen and time. You know, yeah, so I mean, I think Jason Momoa like looks right to play Conan. It, it, I mean, that could have worked. Uh, and I'll be brief about this because we will probably come back to Conan the Barbarian as a future remake, Hate Watch. But it's um, it's it's just a classic shit remake. It's a half-hearted retread of the '82 film, none of which has got the same style or grit. Um, they decided to replace the people who were in the original film with really bang average actors. You know, the bad guy of Avatar. You know, that evil Colonel. Oh yes, Stephen Lang. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah. He's he's the, he, He's the most average kind of film presence you've ever seen, and he's he's playing the main villain that James Earl Jones was essentially in the first film. It's like he's no James Earl Jones, not by a stretch. Right. Uh, it just didn't work. So again, what what you've got is you've got other people's attempts to make the film failing, and then uh, the, the reboot being crap. Hollywood just lost interest. And for fans of Conan, you're basically saying, well, this is a really good like. Uh, character people like fantasy arnie was great in the role there's lots and lots of conan stories you know short stories so you don't you know you don't have the usual challenge of how much of a novel you have to leave out you've got good short stories that could turn into a film just didn't happen um uh, there are there is talk of it coming back though because now arnie's back they have been trying arnie's been trying for about like eight years to try and get this film made because he really wants to do conan again but you know we we still don't know what it's gonna you know whether that's gonna pan out um as part of this feature we always look back on what kind of film this would have been um I, i guess we we know what the original conan film was like and i guess if john Milius had had his way that the second conan film that he did would have been would have been like that. So the style of the first Conan the Barbarian film would be a good indicator. But the Wachowski style and John Milius style is very different. I mean, was 
I don't know whether the Wachowskis would have made it a lot more kind of amped up action because obviously they're you know they're twenty years on from um, John Milius and they revolutionised action films with the Matrix. So maybe they would have you know wanted the film to be done in a very different style. Um, I don't know what that would have looked like. I mean, I guess ideal world what you would have seen was everything that was good about the nineteen eighty two film, but with the Wachowskis you know updating it, making it fresher. Um, we know that's not necessarily how things work out for films because two two um, two things you like don't always combine well together. Um, interestingly, the, the Wachowskis haven't done that much since The Matrix either that I've been that interested in, or they did produce V for Vendetta. You've seen V for Vendetta, James? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I've, I've just got their um, filmography of films that they've been involved in, and anything they've directed since The Matrix has been fucking shite. Um, mm. And the only film they've been involved in but didn't direct, which was Viva Vendetta, was any good, but I doubt that they didn't really ha- – they can't take credit for how good that film was, personally, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they produced it, which obviously I think helped the film get made. But I think Jay- James McTeague is interesting. He's done some quite average films, but he did a nice job on Viva Vendetta. And if you like the the much maligned subgenre of ninja films, James McTeague, also produced by the Wachowskis, he made a film called Ninja Assassin, which is the best ninja film ever made. Not that there's a – not that that's particularly high bar. Yeah, it's, and it's and it's. I'm just looking. I I didn't think Ninja Assassin was that good. I turned it off after about. I am I am I am a sucker for a ninja film, and I and I will watch almost any ninja film. That this that the, the, some of the uh, the quality of ninja films that I've I've watched all the way through at the end would would honestly shock you. The uh, the it it is one of those um, things that ought to be awesome, but most of the films about them are absolutely shit. Yeah, if you look at and if you actually look at the box office takings from the films out with the uh, Matrix films, which made heaps of money, um, and we're not counting Brave Vendetta, so you've got Speed Racer. Lost money by a lot. It's box office only ninety million. Yeah, I just wasn't even remotely interested in. You know, when you hear about a film, you go, "No, nah, I'm not going to watch that." Cloud Atlas's budget was between one hundred and one hundred and forty-six million. They made one hundred and thirty million dollars on it, and that's not including advertising costs. Jupiter. Yeah, I don't. I don't blame the Wachowskis for that because that was fundamentally a shit book that was never going to be a good film. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I'm, I'm in the minority on this, but it's a terrible book. You got to blame them for it because they decided to make it. They should be able to realize what, what's going to be a good film and what's not. And to be honest, yeah. even the, the first Matrix film was good, and it's a it's a great film. But the the sequels to it are fucking shit. Let's not yeah, garbage. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not let's not make ourselves angry again. I was so excited about the sequel to the Matrix, having loved the first film, and you know, made time to go and see it at the cinema, and was so disappointed. I know some people like it. Um, so yeah, the the Wachowskis are out. You won't be hearing about the Wachowskis again in the story of Conan. They they're, they're no longer interested in it. Arnie though, Arnie hasn't given up. Um, he is still talking about making this film. He's absolutely determined to make it. Um. And, you know, every now and again, you hear word that they're going to try and do it again, um, which I'm sure Arnie could do it. I mean, Arnie is like 70, but, you know, he's still, he's the most badass 70-year-old man I've ever seen. And that playing that older Conan the Barbarian character, he could probably still do. I've got mixed feelings about that because I wonder if it would just be Conan the Expendable. And I've, I've kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of over, I'm kind of over action films about old guys now. Um, I'm sure Arnie's in the, in good enough shape to do it, but the whole thing could look a bit like a parody. I don't know if you've read any Terry Pratchett, but he's got a character in his Discworld novels called Cohen the Barbarian, who was an awesome barbarian fighter, but he's 80, right? And he can still kill people anytime you like, but afterwards he needs his like his uh, his beautiful damsel is only there to kind of rub his knees to to um to get help him with his arthritis, <laughs> and 
if you've seen that, you can't ever quite take one of these old barbarian stories that seriously anymore. Um, I think if they did it right, I can't, I can't, yeah. I mean, if someone did, if they did a proper R-rated Conan and let him say goodbye to the character, I mean, Arnie is really, really motivated to do this. I mean, he 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 would probably, if someone said to Arnie, if you could only make one more film before you retire, it would be this. He really, really wants to do it. And I think to dismiss it as you know Conan the Expendable, um, I think you could also look at Logan. Which okay, it's a, obviously Hugh Jackman's only like fifty, fifty one when that comes out, fifty ish. Is he really that old when it came out? Uh, Hugh Jackman, I think, was born in like nineteen sixty seven, and Logan came out in 2017, 2018. Wow! So there's a so he's playing an old, and obviously a, a much older Logan than what we've seen before. So I th- and that worked, that worked really well. Although the film is never as good as the trailer. But no, that's the that, great, greatest film trailer of all time. Yeah, they really set themselves up not to fail, but you know they really asked mm-hmm. a lot after that trailer. But um, yeah, yeah, I think they could do if they did the job properly with um, Conan. I think if they did it not as much as like just a ridiculous action piece, but as more of like a kind of like a homage to the character and saying goodbye to it, it could be done well. But that wouldn't be done yeah. well in the hands of the Wachowskis. And thank fuck they're not interested in it because their films are yeah. shit. They are yeah. I mean, the, the, the one the one thing that people are still feeling, you know, that they're missing is that because it was mishandled back in the day when Arnie, you know, if they'd done a good job of the second Arnie film, you could have had like several Conan films when Arnie's at his peak uh, and you didn't get that. And people are still hungry, you know, fans of this series still are hungry for um, getting to see a continuation of, of Conan, like, uh, you know, the classic young Conan. Um, and around that, I mean, we're coming, getting off film a little bit here, but first Amazon and now Netflix um, want to do a Conan the Barbarian TV series. Amazon abandoned it so they could redo Lord of the Rings, but now Netflix has got the rights, and apparently they are, from what I read, trying to get in production for a new Conan the Barbarian TV series, which I would be very interested to see. Um, I, I think The Witcher was quite successful on Netflix, wasn't it? So I think they're, you know, and fantasy continues to be a popular genre for uh, for film and TV. So. Um, I think they're going to have a, have a crack at it, and Netflix would be less concerned about making it twelve rated like films tend to be. So I'd be, I'd like to see that. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I mean, agree. if you look if you look at the online discussion of it, the one thing that people kind of query is that you know would they try and make Conan too woke nowadays because he's not Conan's not a very PC character in his original, and Game of Thrones got away with you know portraying all sorts of things because they're clearly depicting a world in, in a realistic way notwithstanding that it's got dragons and magic. But if you're portraying a heroic character and saying, wasn't that a fun fight scene, can you have Conan being, you know, a, a kind of very unreconstructed, you know, type of person? Um, I don't know. I think there are some people on, on the internet for whom everything is too woke. So I think really it's just a case of trying to make a good show out of it. You know, he's generally Conan the Barbarian was like a, a thief. He would tend, tend to break into a tower um, and steal some jewels and find that there was a monster in the tower and kill that as well and then get sort of caught up in some sort of shenanigans. And But there's a lot of interesting stories that they could do in, in an episodic way, so I'd definitely like to see that. Um, I'm not sure who would play Conan now. I wouldn't mind just giving Jason Momoa another go at it. Um, Henry Cavill probably looks physically right, but he's always struck me as someone who should play a duke or a prince in stories like that more, more than he should play a barbarian, if you see what I mean. He's got too much of a pretty face, whereas Jason Moore does have that kind of rugged look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, someone else uh, someone else on, on the social said Chris Hemsworth um, would do a job. I'm not sure if he would be available uh, for, for this. I think he, he, I don't think he wants to play too many kind of fantasy characters that are, you know, that are you know, known for being muscly anyway. I think, I think he's probably the same for Henry. He's probably Cavill. explored. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, the other the other name that I thought of was Lee Pace, who played Ronan in some of the Marvel films. Oh yeah. Um, and do you, do you did you say you'd watch the Vikings TV series? I've watched the first season. Are you going to say Travis Fimmel? Um, the guy Clive Standen. I think he's a bit small. Oh no, uh, the guy who plays his brother Rollo. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a big guy. He could do it. Travis Fimmel's a bit diminutive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, who knows? I certainly, I certainly think you're going to see or, or going to see Netflix try and make a Conan TV series, and it might just be that Arnie, who who has 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 a track record in the past of persuading people to make the film he wants them to make, possibly doing that final Legend of Conan film. So watch this space. We might uh, we might be talking about a one that got away that actually got made in one of these times. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. This feature is about remakes that were neither justified nor well done. This month, we were looking at a remake that was definitely not justified. As for well done, well, let's find out. Episode 9's remake Hate Watch is the new 2010 version of The Karate Kid. So, James, I think you'd seen this before we actually decided to do this for the show, didn't you? Uh Yes, I saw this film when it came out 11 years ago. Fucking hell. Uh, a long um, time ago. Yeah. It, see, when it came out, I didn't I didn't think that much of it. Um, I love Jackie Chan, and I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of with the listeners that were, you know, didn't mind this film too much. It's, um, it's not that bad to be on a hate watch. It's got its stupid yeah. moments, um, and we can get to those in a minute. Um and if you don't like the film because of Jaden Smith, and that's fair enough, but if you actually isolate the film, it's actually not too bad. I, I tell you what, when the film came out, I just went, I'm sick of remakes, I hate remakes, there is no need to remake The Karate Kid, and I don't want to see The Karate Kid remake as a star vehicle for one of Will Smith's annoying kids. Fuck this film, I don't want to watch it. It's obviously on the list of remakes to watch for this film uh, for this film podcast for the, you know, the reasons we described. I sat down to watch it, you know, I you know have to admit, more than ready to hate it. I didn't hate it nearly as much as I was expecting to. I'm, I actually, you know, the, I certainly wouldn't give this film anything like the treatment we gave the Lady Killers last month. No, it's it's actually, it's not that bad. I don't think it deserves to be here. Um, it's there are certain elements of it that that just fucking frustrate me, and it's lazy writing. Um, mm-hmm. But when it boils down to it, the, you cannot have a film that you hate that has Jackie Chan in it. It's uh, it, you know the bit where Jackie Chan turns around to Jaden Smith and says, "I will teach you real kung fu." Ah, uh, yeah. I defy anyone not to be grinning from ear to ear when, when that scene happens, or the or even the scene not not grinning into ear for this one, ear to ear. Sorry for this scene, but when the um, when he's telling him about his um, you know why he has a car in his living room, why he smashes it up every mm-hmm. year. Jackie Chan is very good in this film. It's excellent. And there's yeah, actually- yeah, I'll tell you what, Jackie Chan was in the mood to do a proper character um, and to, to give a proper performance. And he, you know, which he always does, but he's always known for being like slightly comic. Basically his, his selling point was always that he was probably as skillful and good at action as, as Bruce Lee, but you know, they already had Bruce Lee. So how was he going to differentiate himself? And it was with his flair for comedy. 
But every now and again, he does something quite serious, and you realise, yeah, Jackie Chan is really good and really kind of. So this is quite a grounded character, right? Beginning to end, he's like, yeah, this. I I, I feel what this guy's feeling. If you see what I mean. Yeah, I. There are there are moments in this film that did that really fucking annoyed me. Um, for example, when he gets in the um, he gets in the fight with um the kid at the start and the the kind of playground in between all the the blocks of flats. And he has a little black eye when he goes to school, and the teacher goes, "Oh yeah, fighting's not allowed at the schools. If fighting's allowed at every other fucking school, like stop being a fucking idiot. See shit like that, lazy writing." Yeah, and and some some of that I think is down to the the fundamental problem that they are tied to another film. Do you know what I mean? Whoever sat down to write this, whoever decided, you know, if you sit down and have an idea, and some of those ideas might be generated by the fact that now this is Jaden Smith. He's moved to China. That's not the same as moving from the East Coast of America to the West Coast. Is different. What are you going to write about? Sorry, guys. You can only write about the basic plot of the original film. And I think some of the problems of the film are because of that. Um, the things that, like I say, I think overall the film was done by people who know what they're doing. I think Taraji P. Henson does a nice job as his mum. I thought Jaden Smith was okay, to be honest. Um, some of the problems I had with the film... Who takes a train to Wudan Mountain, seven hundred miles away, to to learn about kung fu? Like, especially when he's like twelve years old, that doesn't. Uh, that, that whole thing was like, I know we wanted to kind of. I think they got some money to kind of show off China. It was a Chinese co-production, but in the, in the original film, he's going across to Mister Miyagi's house, which is on the other side of the same town after school. In this, they go on a day trip to somewhere nearly eight hundred miles away. Fucking bollocks! It just. Ugh. And then when he, he when he's training on top of the Great Wall of China, I'm like, oh, no, really, come on. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of you know cheesy, you know, basically sightseeing parts of China, which yeah. Is- and the the other problem you've got is a big difference between like a 17 year old high school kid having this storyline and a, and a 12 year old kid having this storyline. It's like some of that just, you know, it's like having, you know, a, a romance with another pupil and like rivalry with other pupils. It, it really was, it, they took a storyline that was originally like between 17 year olds and gave it to 12 year olds, which, which was a bit weird at times. Yeah. Uh, the bit, the comment one of the listeners made about the, um, the uncomfortable with the romance was a bit. Now, I didn't notice it when I watched the film because I watched it again. It was on, um, I think it was on Sky Go or something. So I gave it a, a rewatch last week, and they, they've got a point about it being a bit, yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, but I don't I mean, know why people give, 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 it, give it its due. I think the martial arts scenes are better than in the original because I mean, back back in 1984, Pat Morita was a a kind of a well known sort of experienced. The Japanese American actor done a lot of TV. You know, you'll always see him popping up in an episode of Quincy or The Streets of San Francisco. Didn't even have that Japanese accent, by the way. Um, but he wasn't a martial arts guy. He's about five foot four, and and Ralph Macho looks like someone's tied two bits of spaghetti together and try and make them stand up. Much as I like Ralph Macho, and Jackie Chan is clearly good at martial arts. And Jaden Smith, he lo- he was actually quite convincing. I thought he was all right. He actually, um, you know, when he's you know learning to do a high kick and all that stuff, he looked like he was, you know, physically a lot more adept than Ralph Macchio was. Not that that was the point of the first film, anyway, really. Yeah, it's. If, I I don't understand why this gets a lot of hate. It's a. Uh, it's it's definitely not the worst remake we've ever seen. You know, there are no, no, definitely you know, not. There are. It's, it's an all right film on its on its own. 
There's some funny bits in it. Taraji P. Henson is a good actress. She plays the mum very well. Jackie Chandler. Jaden Smith, when he was in this, must have been about, what, 11, 12? So we're not expecting... Yeah, yeah, he was... And up until this point, we've only seen him in, like, The Pursuit of Happiness, where he literally plays... Yeah, where he's just got to play a cute kid, right? So you're asking... I mean, if you're expecting a bit... If you're going to hate on a 12-year-old kid for not giving an Oscar-worthy performance, I think you need to allow it a little bit. But if you don't don't like Jaden Smith, because I find Jaden Smith annoying, and I found him annoying in... What was that other film? After Earth. That was fucking yeah. shit. And if you After got, birth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, he, he's not very, he's not very engaging. He's a bit arrogant in his like demeanor, especially in the film and in real life. He's a bit of a fucking fruit loop. If you ever fancy a laugh, just go to his Twitter and look at his craziest tweets. But um, he's, he's not, he's not too obnoxious in this and it's an all right film. Mm-hmm. I think, if they'd got someone else to play the kid in it, it would have been, I don't think it would have been even considered to be in the remake Kate Watch, which is interesting. I think if it had just been some other kid, I think this film would be remembered a little bit differently, but because it's Jaden Smith and Jaden Smith is regarded as being that kind of annoying kid that we've seen on the Graham Norton, where he was basically mm. trying to embarrass his dad as much as he can. Um, yeah. But no, the thing is, I actually don't mind this film and Jaden Smith being in it. And... Uh, I think. I mean, if you if you look at it this way, if I'd not heard that there was any film called The Karate Kid, I would watch this film and quite enjoyed it. But it is weird that it's called The Karate Kid, even though he's doing kung fu, not karate. Yeah. Um, but the main the main problem is again, we'll go back to this. We've already slagged off the executives a couple of times in this episode. We've slagged them off countless times on previous episodes. The problem is, is that when they decided that you know the young emerging child star talent of Jaden Smith needed a vehicle. They, they're they so lacking in imagination that all I can think of to do is a remake. Um, and any of the problems that you do over this film are the fact that, like I say, despite it not being too bad, it still all seems a little bit n- not quite... It just it, it, it seems a bit off because the whole thing belongs in a different age. This is an 80s underdog story in a high school, right? It's like if someone released um, the, the Breakfast... Oh, the, actually, The Breakfast Club is shit. Someone released Ferris Bueller's Day Off, one of those John Hughes films. Now you'd say, oh, that's really good, but hasn't that been done? Yeah. Um, and the other thing is the, orig- the original film was kind of autobiographical. The, the guy who wrote the screenplay for the film learned karate at, at, at a school, uh, the Miyagi school. That's why he named the character Mr. Miyagi. He was very fond of his teachers and what martial arts taught him. So he grafted that onto the basic plot of an 80s high school movie, um, you know, with the usual kind of underdog spirit and villain archetypes and the whole kind of tournament thing's like a bit rocky. And that's fine, right? Everyone went, oh, it's a bit like Rocky, but I enjoy it. Ralph Macchio's an engaging character. So... Doing it all over again is redundant. And I, I wonder if you would have actually had a better film, a film that I would even be a fan of, if they'd said, okay, we've got an idea for a film. Jaden Smith's mum has been transferred to China, right? And, you know, obviously that's going to be reminiscent of a bunch of other films, but you don't have to call a film The Karate Kid. You don't have to follow the same basic plot. You could have quite a good film about American kids struggling to settle in a foreign country and finds a way to, to fit in by immersing himself in, in martial arts, right? Maybe the issue could be that he doesn't speak Chinese and feels left out, but because he hangs out with Jackie Chan, he learns a bit of Chinese and, and learns to, to settle in with the culture. People could have watched it and said, oh, that's a bit like The Karate Kid, but who cares? People watched The Karate Kid and thought it was a bit like Rocky, but still loved the film. Yeah, and I, I, I just think, why not? You know, there's you, you don't have to be a massive purist, right? No, no one is saying that every film has to be a completely new story, but they could have taken what people liked about several other films and given it a slightly fresh spin. And the stuff that I liked about this film, Jackie Chan and his backstory, and you know, trying to trying to get on in it in a different country, it could all have been it could all have actually been better if they weren't tied to a remake, which sets people's teeth on edge from the beginning. If you see what I mean. 
Yeah, although do you not think if they'd done a film where this kid is being bullied um, and he therefore goes to Jack Chan to learn Kung Fu, not Karate, in order to defend himself and, you know, beat this kid in a tournament, um, would you not think, well, you've just, done the, you've just done the plot to the Karate kid there? You just changed Well, that's the thing. I, th- I think they should have tried to do something different rather than make it about trying to overcome a school bully. Maybe it would have been about, you know, he's a bit lonely because of, there's a couple of kids he talks to and everything, but if, you know... It's like I don't, I can't read the read the signs. I can't go any of the places I used to go. I don't speak the language. I feel really left out. It doesn't have to be being bullied. It doesn't have to be doing this to beat a bully in a tournament. Yeah. You could, like you say, it's lazy writing. They could have said, "Well, let let let's put the kid in that situation and and try and see what where it goes." Yeah, I, I did, but I do think if they'd made the film not called it the Karate Kid in China, it was called the Kung Fu Dream. But I feel like <laughs> if, they'd, if they'd made it without completely distancing itself from the Karate Kid, people have just gone, well, you've just made the Karate Kid. So I kind of understand why they've named it that because I guess naming it that gets more people to go and see it because then at the end of the day, when people hear, oh, reboot, remake, they'll go and see it because they're interested to see yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easier to just get people to watch it. It's pre-existing um, IP. That's why they do it. Yeah, the, the only problem I have is lazy writing, like that teacher saying fighting doesn't isn't allowed at the school. Things like, you know, the film is two hours and 20 minutes long. I know 10 minutes of that. that, that is, that's longer than it needs to Fucking be. Yeah. And to be honest, like the criticism about them having that romance between him and the, uh, the, the young Chinese girl... <laughs> Is when you look at the runtime, and then look at that romance that doesn't it doesn't add anything to the film. Like the the film, the plot of that film still happens if you don't have that plot character. Back. And I'm all when when you're writing a film and watching a film, I'm all about you know having people in the film that drive the plot and help the plot be driven. And you know, obviously have the bad kid in it, but don't you don't need her in it at all. Um, but no, there's some there's actually some good moments in it. I do like the bit where Taraji P Henson makes uh, Jaden Smith, because I can't remember the character's names in the film. Um, she says, oh, practice your Chinese with that guy on the plane. And then he says, you know, hi, how are you? And the guy goes, dude, I'm from Detroit. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah. it was actually not too bad. Um, I think it, I, if I was to give this like a film out of like 10, I'd probably give it like a six or, you know, a seven, you know. It's, yeah. I mean, like I say, once we've committed to doing the, the film for the feature, we got to do it. But I, I must admit, this isn't a hate watch. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, this, it's, is, this is not, this is not, um, this is nowhere near some of the, the travesties that we've, we've been watching lately. What's different between this and, say, The Lady Killers is that Lady Killers is directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, who have written some great films and have made some really good films. And that cast is really good, except Marlon Wayans. He can go and fuck himself. Um, but you've got, you know, Tom Hanks and um, J.K. Simmons. You've got a really good cast there. And that film was a letdown because it, was, it wasn't funny. There wasn't anything in it that I found enjoyable at all. The only good thing was probably the performance of the... Um, the lady who owns the house. Old lady, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas this actually has some decent performances. It's yeah, I, 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 it's I, I kind of enjoyed it. I kind of enjoyed this yeah. film. You know, I think there are some there are some fundamental flaws, and you know, the fact that they were doing a remake at all, you know. But like I say, I, I can't say I hated it. I know there were some some things I actually quite enjoyed. Yeah, there's just a couple of bits of like lazy writing and bits of story that just didn't need. It's, to be it's even. It's, I'll tell you what, all the things I like about this film are, are like the things that were were like a new touch that the writers tried to add to it. Yeah. Like the bit where he's, get, he's getting the hang of the fighting, um, but because his everything he does is being shown in an action replay, he looks up and he sees that he makes a really funny expression with his face when he's throwing his punches, and Jackie Chan turns to him and says, can you stop doing that? I quite like that. I thought that was quite a nice touch. Yeah, no, um, Jackie Chan is... I, I, you know, yeah, Jackie Chan. There's a film he's, he does as well called The Foreigner, which I'm going to have to look up, where it's him again doing a more serious part, um, because the guy can, can really do it. And 
It's funny, Jackie Chan clearly signed up for this and said, you know what, I don't know what else happens, but I'm going to do a good job oh, here. I've watched Absolutely that. that watched. Is that a film that I've watched and you haven't? Yep, yep. The one with Pierce Brosnan? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not that good. Oh, it's, that's a shame. It's oh, Pierce Brosnan that he's... I can't remember, but he's basically... Uh, Pierce Brosnan is Jerry Adams, but he's not Jerry Adams, but he looks like Jerry Adams because he's got the beard and he's like, this is our terms, this is what we want. And he's like, but he's not called Jerry Adams, but J- somehow Jackie Chan gets caught up in the plot because the not IRA or and not Sinn Féin and all that are like, you know, they've, they've done a bombing somewhere in like 2018 because mm. the, good, the Good Friday Agreement doesn't exist. So it's just a bit of a mess of a film. But It must have been written by Dominic Rob. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, pretty, it's a bit ridiculous and it's just it's kind of, oh, that's a kind of on the nose. Give it a watch. I mean, maybe maybe I'm better. thinking of something else then. I definitely was reading someone saying, oh, you should watch Jackie Chan doing some more serious parts, but I don't know. Jackie Chan's not bad. Yeah. Like I said, Jackie Chan is not bad in any film that he's been in. Even, even no, the Russian film, absolutely which is directed not. by Brett fucking Ratner. Are still mm. not that bad because Jackie Chan's in them, and you've got you've got Chris Tucker in that, who's uh, in Jeffrey Epstein's Black Book, and he's a fucking prick. Yeah, yeah. And mm. even despite having Brett Ratner and Chris Tucker in them, and Chris Tucker being that annoying prick that he is, you've still got Jackie Chan in those films. Yeah, those Jackie Chan does some serious heavy lifting in those films. WhatsApp. I'm not going to finish line. Um <laughs> but that's the best bit of the film. That that's an incredible scene. Ah, uh-huh, yes. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we will be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're looking at the stories emerging about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and their significance in the Me Too movement. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity, and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to us. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of your two of the episode including info on the films and topics we discussed look forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute see you on the other side i was just happy to see a train that's moving